0: To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of my good friend, Dr Peter Hammond. I'm going to bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Excellent. Great to have you on board as always. And today, folks, Peter has got a presentation for us entitled The Real Story of Espionage in World War II. So where would you like to start us off today with this, Peter?
1: Thank you, Andrew. I've recently completed a book called The Secret War Spies, Codes, and Guerrillas 1939 to 1945. This is written by Max Hastings, who's a pretty mainstream British journalist uh, author. Uh, He's uh, written books like All Hell Let Loose, uh, which is also in the Second World War. Uh, But this book is quite remarkable and important because it could well be the best single volume yet written on the subject of espionage in the Second World War from all sides. Now, that doesn't mean I agree with the author on everything. He's got uh, his own perspectives and he certainly accepts the general narrative on the Second World War, which Hollywood gives, which I don't accept. Uh, Nevertheless, what's particularly powerful about this book is he brings together a whole lot of details about the espionage war, which has been sealed. You take, for example, the Bletchley Park GCHQ or uh, the um, whole uh, cypher uh, school at Bletchley Park, which were sealed for 60 years as ultra top secret. So uh, he's had access to materials on espionage, including from Russia, on... The Red Army side in espionage during Second World War, which was not available until after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, and of course Bletchley's secrets was only recently released as well. So uh, all of this has come to, uh, in fact, as one general commented reviewing the book, that this book, The Secret War by Max Hastings, requires every book and every documentary film on the Second World War and most of the dramas too to be rewritten because it blows out of the water unintentionally, I'm sure, but it blows out of the water virtually every myth that we've come to expect about the Second World War. And uh, probably one of the biggest of them considering that we gave a whole program dealing with Hess and his peace mission in 1941. And uh, uh, this gives us the clearest understanding of how much the British knew, how much the Americans knew, the Germans knew, the Russians knew, the Japanese knew, and even the Italians. It's got different aspects of the war. In fact, it even gives you insights into Polish and into Czech intelligence. So uh, this one volume, 600 pages, (laughs) it's quite a a daunting tome, but it's it's like a spy thriller, but hearing, uh, it's chronological. It tackles the world war from the perspective of the people normally far from the battlefields who never fired a shot, but whose actions and attitudes profoundly influenced the outcome of the war. And uh, this is the thing. So many people, uh, so many narratives, so many novels, so many films, so many dramas, and even documentaries give the impression of, uh, you know, the... Operation Barbaros was a complete surprise and Stalin was shocked and no one expected this. And, and well, of course, once you open up all the uh, previously sealed top secret, ultra top secret decrypts and you find out what Bletchley Park knew and you find out what the Red Army knew and what Stalin knew, uh, it it actually destroys uh, so much of the cherished narratives and propaganda perspectives that has Survived since the Second World War. And so, uh, since this book has come out, I think, in all honesty, many of the people out there uh, should be rewriting the textbooks about the Second World War. Of course, we don't expect them to uh, in a hurry, but uh, it needs to be done. Just like Freedom Betrayed, the secret history of America's involvement in the Second World War, and its aftermath, by President Herbert Hoover and uh, Pat Buchanan's. Uh, Churchill, Hitler, an unnecessary war, how Britain lost to empire and the West lost the world, and the Peter Padbury book on uh, Hess, Hitler, and Churchill, uh, the real turning point in the Second World War, and other books like that. I think that uh, there's tremendous need for revision. And uh, uh, it's vital that we revise the understanding of the past as new facts come forward, especially facts that have been suppressed by government Edicts, you can know when a government seals things for 60 years, as in the case of Bletchley Parks uh, decrypts from GCHQ, um, (laughs) there's a lot of lies they're hiding. And when you find that the Hess files from May 1941, the Hess flight, has been sealed for 80 years, well, you know that there's some pretty serious uh, damaging to the narrative, to the propaganda, information that could come out. And again, we know just going to contemporary history, why is it that the FBI files on Martin Luther King Jr. are sealed still? Uh, I think they a judge sealed them for, was it, 70 years? And that from somebody in 1960s, that's just staggering, mind-boggling, that uh, they can seal some things. And when governments seal uh, secrets, it's not... <laughs> that they're trying to protect the truth, they are hiding lies. Uh, that's the only reason why why that would be done. So uh, to get into into this uh, this book, and um, I, I've uh, not just read it; I've studied it. It's, it's quite extraordinary. So Max Hastings' *The Secret War: Spies, Codes, and Guerrillas, 1939 to 1945* it lets us know a series of fascinating things. Firstly, and of great import, the fact that. Germany was riddled with spies, riddled with with Soviet Red Army agents uh, from the GRU, which is the military intelligence, from the NKVD, which later became the KGB. Uh, the Soviet intelligence operation dwarfed everyone else's uh, espionage uh, in size, in scale, in money, in manpower, in results. Uh, across the board, it dwarfed them all so that As Max Hastings concludes, uh, the Soviets had the best, the biggest, and the most widespread espionage agency in the world, much, much, much greater, with a much greater budget than the British, American, German, Japanese, Italian, French combined. Much greater. Now, I don't know if any of us have ever seen a film on a Soviet spy or even read a novel about a Soviet spy, and yet here you're suddenly discovering the Soviets had very high-level intelligence uh, assets right within Germany. And when you bear in mind that even as late as 1933, almost 20% of the votes cast in Germany in the 1933 elections uh, were for the Communist Party. And so there were many communists in Germany. And in the Third Reich, there were people in the Luftwaffe, uh, in the Wehrmacht, in the Abwehr, who were passing top secrets over to the Soviets, and they were also handing over to the British. The Abwehr, the German military intelligence, was riddled with traitors and with agents uh, serving uh, the Allied cause and undermining the German war effort. It's, it's actually quite astounding. So that we we've come to understand in recent times about Bletchley Park that the British were on an industrial scale. Uh, hacking into the Kriegsmarine Marine Naval traffic, into the Luftwaffe traffic, into the Wehrmacht traffic. They knew ahead of time many of the German Army's activities. And uh, for example, the attack on Crete, the largest uh, German paratrooper assault.
0: You you just dropped. Para- you you said right. the largest paratrooper uh, assault, and then you dropped out. So. Please continue from the okay, last... Okay,
1: um, are we back? Can you, you hear we me are. again?
0: Yeah, I can hear you now.
1: Good, thank you, Andrew. So the the paratroop assaults on Crete in 1941, the Allies, through their decrypts through GCH2, through the Cypher School, uh, through Bletchley Park, knew everything, drop zones, exact. they had the maps, they knew exactly. And so they were expecting a monumental victory at Crete because they knew ahead of time the entire battle plan, the entire... Deployment, the strength, everything, the amount of aircraft, where they're coming from, where they're going to do their drops. So uh, the German paratroopers moved into a complete and utter trap at Crete. And that explains why the German paratroopers lost so many men on landing. And yet they still took Crete. And the British suffered a defeat in Crete, proving a point which Max Hastings makes on a number of occasions that. Uh, it doesn't matter how good your human intelligence, human, it doesn't matter how good your sig- int or signal intelligence is, you still need hard power on the ground to enforce the information you've got. And so he said in many cases, they knew everything ahead of time, but their soldiers were continually outfought by the German Wehrmacht and that the Wehrmacht was just better. It was the best army of the Second World War by far. Uh, and in any case, uh, he again and again says, The continual complaint of British forces on the ground and the American, too, was that the intelligence had underestimated the strength of the German forces they were facing. But as Max Hastings concludes at the end, uh, no, the signal intelligence and human intelligence was phenomenally accurate. It wasn't that the information wasn't adequate. It was just that the German units, no matter what their size or strength, always outperformed the Allies. They were always more dedicated. They took more initiative. They were more courageous. They just were better soldiers, more resilient, uh, even when undersupplied, even when outnumbered, even when overwhelmed. They fought more. So that time and again, uh, the intelligence chiefs were getting complaints back saying, you underestimated, there must be more than this divisional strength or whatever. And uh, the conclusion at the end is, no, uh, the intelligence was excellence. It just is that what you can't, always sum up is the quality of the troops on the ground on on each side and so that yes you may know how many tanks they had at elamin you may know how many soldiers they had you may know uh, how little petrol supplies and how little their uh, artillery supplies are but what many uh, intelligence gatherers can never estimate is the fighting spirit the training uh the Uh, morale, the initiative taken by troops on the ground, or lack of initiative taken in some cases. So, for example, with the Battle of Crete, where they had all the info ahead of time, and paratroopers are incredibly vulnerable, especially uh, when they're in the air before they land on the ground. And with all of the advanced knowledge, the fact that the British, which thought they were going to have a phenomenal victory, uh, were still beaten, uh, even after having all the advantage of pre-knowledge. Uh, so, forearmed in this case was uh, forewarned, was not forearmed sufficiently to win a victory. And so, again, again he points out the Hume Int and the Sig Int, which the Allies had in abundance and had a surplus of. And in fact, throughout the whole war, they were fighting at the advantage of knowing the enemy's dispositions because the Germans had what they thought was the most uncrackable code of all, the Enigma Code. And this was a, an uh, an early form of a computer, where basically with these rotors, which could be altered, and the, just a the flick of the dial, it could change the configuration so that there were literally millions of possibilities uh, for any particular message being sent out. But what they had not estimated was because of treachery within Germany, there were communists who had supplied the Poles already with uh, Enigma machines so that already before the war, um, in early 1939, the Polish intelligence was showing the British intelligence copies of the Enigma machines. So the British actually had an actual Enigma in hand uh, long before the war, long before the um, Navy managed to uh, seize an Enigma machine and so on. Uh, And of course, that didn't solve the problem yet. But it meant that they could start working on a computer to interpret the computer because you cannot only beat a machine with a better machine. And therefore, they had to devise another kind of computer that could decode all the millions of possibilities of what this message could be with Enigma, which was at that stage thought to be impossible. And humanly, it was impossible. But if a machine could produce all the variations of the code, then another machine could break through and work out in, in tremendous speed uh, what the configurations are and finally settle on what makes sense and then, then make that available to the code breakers. So the Polish uh, intelligence was way ahead in having Enigma machine before even the war started in 1939. What was also extraordinary is that the Czech intelligence had a colossal, massive budget, bigger than the Abbey, And the Czechs put a lot of their money into buying up British politicians. And uh, they were uh, not only buying up British politicians, they had a whole lot of dedicated communists in the German army and Luftwaffe who were providing to the Czech intelligence the entire order of battle and the uh, entire disposition and plans. And that Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia knew ahead of time not only the German Army's capabilities, but their plans and their operational procedures, uh, their weapons, the whole lot, just an amazing amount of, of uh, information. The infiltration of Germany by communists uh, in particular was very effective and especially the, the Red Orchestra. And so uh, the Red uh, Orchestra is the name given to a group of Soviet agents who, and in fact, there were several orchestras within Germany who were, uh, uh, so infiltrated that they knew what was coming out of the foreign affairs, they knew what was coming out of uh, the um, OKW, uh, which is the, the combined operations, uh, the Luftwaffe, the Kriegsmarine, the Army. Uh, the Kriegsmarine was less infiltrated than the others. Uh, the Luftwaffe was probably more so. The Wehrmacht very heavily so. And so... Uh, There was the German Abwehr was riddled with both British and Russian agents who knew ahead of time, right up to the second in command of uh, the Abwehr, uh, Admiral Canaris's uh, 2IC or second command were actually traitors and uh, working for the other side. And there's questions as to whether uh, Admiral Canaris himself may have uh, been a traitor. But there's no doubt that the Abwehr played a key role in supplying information to the enemy about Germany's plans, intentions, capabilities, resources, uh, vulnerabilities. And not only that, uh, but when it came to the attempt on the life of Adolf Hitler, the bomb plot of July 1944, uh, the British intelligence provided the explosives, the uh, plastic explosives, C4, and the timers and uh, all the devices needed through the upbear. And so it was smuggled through Sweden, and uh, brought into to Germany by the Abwehr and made available to the bomb plot people for the assassination of Hitler, such as British explosives, which the German intelligence provided. So I don't think people have realized up till now just how riddled uh, the German uh, high command was with with traitors on on the other side. And so in Max Hastings books, he speaks about uh, some of these um, traitors in uniform even, high uniforms in the uh, Luftwaffe and Abwehr turning up uh, into uh, for example the soviet embassy or meeting some of the people and providing huge amounts of photocopies and uh, photographs and massive amounts of of documents uh, copied stolen and so on uh, from german high command from okw so um you can understand why the allies have not wanted to make this well known because they wanted to give the impression as hollywood has that they fought uh, better that they Uh, won the war and so on. And just as if you're playing a game of cards and the other person's got someone on right behind you looking over your shoulder and informing by some signs what uh, card the other player is having, that's, you know, that's considered cheating. You're not exactly playing on the level playing field. And uh, there was more than that, much more than that. So that this talk that Operation Barbarossa was a shock, was a surprise that the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941 was unexpected and that the Red Army wasn't ready. Well, that has been disproven on every single level. The amount of intelligence. The the Red Army knew about the planned Operation Barbarossa a year ahead. They got multiple uh, uh, in, information from multiple sources. The Red Orchestra in particular they're talking about every possible level Uh, knew about it, and you can't plan operation that big, involving a couple of million soldiers across a 1,400-mile front uh, without a lot of preparations being done. And in fact, there's no way that it was a secret. The British knew all about it from Bletchley Park, GCHQ, and they provided it to the Russians. The Soviets had advance warning from their own agents, from their own human intelligence, and from SIGINT, from their own signal intelligence. They had it from German spies uh, and traitors who had handed the information over to them. And the British government had also informed them. So uh, as uh, Max Hastings brings out that the popular film, uh, which has made uh, GCHQ so well known in recent times, like The Imitation Game, which he called wildly imaginative and fictionalised story about Alan Turing, and the BBC miniseries The Bletchley Circle, Uh, In there, they give the impression that, first of all, Alan Turing single-handedly won the war kind of thing, which is nonsense. Um, He said uh, Alan Turing was one of hundreds of codebreakers and it was a team effort all the way along and it certainly wasn't just one person. And uh, the way they've glamorized Alan Turing and the way they... uh, But, of course, that makes good Hollywood drama, but it's fiction, it's not fact. And uh, he points out that the idea that the... uh, commander of GCHQ was in any way hostile or suspicious or sceptical uh, or interfering in Alan Turing or any of the code breakers as nonsense. Uh, they were. They understood they had people who were um, code breakers, who were not your normal military people, who weren't to be put through the normal run of the mill. And so uh, the, the whole uh, Hollywood picture, and the imitation game, is so completely opposite to the facts, you know, especially the drama that There, the officer commanding is sending in his people to smash up the machine, which is being built to uh, decode uh, uh, Enigma codes uh, from the Enigma machine. Absolute fiction. You know, it's drama uh, for the screen, but it's completely unrelated to to reality and history. So the, the British government from the highest level were giving everything they knew about German military intentions, capabilities, resources, dispositions, uh, how many divisions, where they were, all the rest of it, to the Russians even before the war brought Russia into it. And so the depiction and the imitation game that there was a a communist traitor in Bletchley Park who was uh, slipping the secrets to the Soviets because it affected them, because the British government wouldn't do it is absolute nonsense. And the fact that Alan Turing would be in any way trying to help this, um, letting the Red Army know about the dangers ahead of time because the British government is complete fiction. Because the British government under Winston Churchill was informing the Soviets even when the Soviet Union was technically meant to be having a uh, non-aggression pact with the Third Reich of Germany and was not meant to be an ally of Britain. So Britain was aiding them all the way along. It's intriguing to see how the Czech military intelligence had vast amounts of money to buy up allied politicians. It's intriguing to see how many in the British government were actually paid assets of Czech military intelligence, and even of Polish. Uh, it's fascinating to see that the Red Army was so prepared. They ha- That's why they had the vast amount of the army right up front, close to the border. They had colossal preparations, and they were preparing to invade uh, Europe anyway. The Red Army's plans had been that Germany get caught in a long, bloody, dragged out Western Front campaign, such as the First World War had been, and that they could then attack uh, from the east. And uh, they were shocked at how quickly the German army rolled up uh, the French army and in a matter of six weeks defeated France, which was meant to be a superpower, and to have taken everywhere from Norway, Denmark, Poland, uh, all the way through to uh, Uh, France and Netherlands and Belgium just so quickly, in a matter of weeks, shocked them. And then they went back. They had to delay their plan to invade uh, Germany from the east, and they started a massive uh, rearmament program. And so this part of the secret war going on behind the scenes, which has been covered up by people who know this, but because it doesn't fit the the narrative, uh, it's exposed here. It's shown that there's no doubt that Stalin knew, everyone knew, Berea, who's head of the NKVD, knew, the Red Army knew, uh, they were prepared. And that's why uh, they were deployed in such great numbers. And they outnumbered the German army enormously. They had five times
0: Peter, you just dropped or, again?
1: Right. You uh, said they had five times. Yeah, you... Uh, you- So go from five times. The Red Army on the Eastern Front before Operation Barbarossa, the Soviets had all their resources, better, bigger, stronger tanks, greater artillery, and they were convinced that they would be able to invade Germany while Germany was distracted in the Western Front. And when they realized that that was not so, they were then prepared uh, to do a preemptive raid on Germany. And... uh, they were prepared, they knew about Germany's plans, they knew about the dates, they knew about when they were going to operate and Barbarossa and every single detail. And interestingly enough, when the British Army informed the uh, the Red Army that the Germans had 130 uh, divisions on the uh, front ready to invade, the uh, Reds knew that that was not accurate, they had more than that. And um, the the, the uh, Allied uh, intelligence was so advanced on the Soviet side, the Soviets knew every side of what was going to go on in Germany. And what was more, um, they were prepared to lose whole armies of theirs in deception operations. More about that in a moment. So when the Soviet Red Army was smashed in a matter of days and most of the Red Army, Army Air Force was destroyed on the ground or in the air in literally the first week. And uh, virtually the entire tank corps of the Soviet Union had been annihilated in under two weeks. And as the German army made spectacular advances heading towards Minsk and uh, Smolensk, and there had to be an explanation as to why they'd been able to do it. And so the, the propaganda came. It was a surprise. It was a shock. No one expected. No one anticipated. Well, how can you not anticipate the colossal buildup that would have taken mega months and the resources and the mobilizing of so many forces on the the eastern frontier of Germany, there's no way that Operation Barbarossa could have been a surprise. And we know this from the British side. We know it from the Bletchley Park side. We know it from the Soviet Red Army side. And Max Hastings' book, The Secret War, proves conclusively that from multiple sources, for many months ahead, for up to a year ahead, The warnings were there. They knew it from people within OKW itself. Communist traitors within the German high command had informed them. They knew the whole order of battle. But knowing your enemy's activities, disposition, capabilities, resources, and limits is still not enough. Nobody could have anticipated the fury, the efficiency, the effectiveness of the Blitzkrieg. And Stalin was so stunned when... The Blitzkrieg was unleashed in Operation Barbarossa, and the Soviets lost 3 million men in the space of the first few months of that battle. They lost virtually the entire Air Force uh, tank corps uh, so fast. It's so embarrassing when they had all the prior warnings. The only answer was, this is a surprise nobody saw it coming, this is treacherous, and so on and so forth, which is complete and utter fiction. And, of course, the Germans had every reason to think that they could win, And people who have said time and again that it was ridiculous, it was insane, and there was no reason, and uh, uh, this was uh, a a war that could not be won. In fact, the secret war proves that that's not true. Germany had the resources. They could beat the Soviet Union. Yes, the Soviets knew a lot more and their intelligence was better, uh, but the German army's fighting capabilities were so underestimated and the morale of the men was so sky high and the tenacity of them men, they achieved more than anyone could have expected. But the, uh, the thing that nobody could have anticipated was that the United States and Great Britain and Canada would pour in billions of dollars worth of high-tech weaponry, tens of thousands of tanks, aircraft, and billions of rounds of ammo and tens of millions of rounds of artillery and vast numbers. The the, um, list of gifts given from Britain, America and Canada to the Soviet Union under Lend-Lease, complete gifts paid for by South African gold taken from our country under General Smuts. Extraordinary. So that Germany could see that in the first month they'd won the war. They'd beaten the Soviets. The Red Army was destroyed. But where are these new tanks coming from? Where's all the aircraft coming from? We've destroyed the entire aircraft and more and more and more. And how can they still manage to field an army? We've destroyed their, their uh, equipment. We've destroyed the tanks, the aircraft, artillery. Where's this coming from? And when it dawned on the Germans that the Americans were supplying them, even before Pearl Harbor, well before Japan brought America into the war, well before America's Uh, commitment to the war, the US government was illegally, secretly, shoveling vast amounts of what they called the arsenal for democracy in the guise of, we need to be the arsenal for democracy to raise enough weaponry to help the democracies of Britain and France and so on to fight against the Nazis, to use their terminology. Uh, What most of the people working and slaving hard and working overtime in the factories of Britain, Canada, and the United States could not have imagined is, That the vast amount of this arsenal for democracy were going to the worst dictatorship, the most bloodthirsty dictatorship and totalitarian regime on the planet, Stalin's Soviet Union. So rather than being an arsenal for democracy, so much of this colossal output and sacrifice of the populations of of Britain, America and Canada were going to help Stalin's Soviet Union, USSR dictatorship, the worst persecutor of the church and the most bloodthirsty regime in history to survive, which who could have foreseen that? So what what we've got in this uh, uh, book is so extraordinary. Uh, one of the things that's quite amazing, too, is how uh, Stalin was willing to sacrifice an entire Russian army, uh, lost over 70,000 men in a deception operation. So to, to be able to bolster one of his um, double agents, who the Germans thought was one of their most uh, trusted people, um, uh, uh, Gellin, uh, Agent Max, uh, that he was actually on the on the German side uh, to to deceive the Abwehr into this. Uh, they gave the dispositions of Soviets accurately to enable Germany to win such a victory that they wiped out seventy thousand Russians in an encirclement operation, which was so successful it enhanced the prestige of um, of uh, this uh, agent Max, and yet. Uh, it was just to set them up for the biggest uh, um, deception operation of all, which was Kursk. And so this this traitor, um, who was the double agent for the Soviets, for the Red Army, for the Red Orchestra, managed to get his credibility um, so high because he enabled him to win a major victory, killing over 70,000 Soviets. And nobody, not the British, not the Germans, could imagine that Stalin would willingly give up an entire army with all their equipment and 70,000 lives just to enhance the prestige of a double agent to set up the Germans for a big double cross coming up, which was at the Battle of Kursk, the greatest tank battle in history. Now, the British knew of Kursk coming up, knew that Germany was putting all their new tanks, all their resources in a major thrust to be able to create a blitzkrieg surrounding destroying Uh, the Kursk salient on the Eastern Front. And yet they were walking into the biggest trap ever set. And a, a double agent was part of it. And so the deception operations run on all sides throughout the war are quite impressive. But the deception operations run by the Soviets through the NKVD boggle the brain and stagger the imagination There's nothing like it in history. And uh, as Max Hastings uh, documents in The Secret War, uh, the Red Army hands down dwarfs every other intelligence operation and double-cross operation and deception operation combined of all other uh, intelligence operations uh, put together. And so very interesting, uh, fascinating. Um, It really destroys so much of the narratives we've been given and uh, it's an interesting thing to know, bearing in mind my father was in the Eighth Army in North Africa, that uh, Rommel won his victories despite the fact that the British commanders were getting every morning with their breakfast the decrypts from Bletchley on the German uh, uh, opposition, the, the Africa Corps' deployments, their resources, their supply line problems, their shortage of fuel, shortage of, of artillery, all of that they knew. They even knew Rommel's orders. And uh, despite having all his advantages, uh, Rommel still won great victories. And one of the reasons given was that they said, uh, it's not good enough to know what your enemy is doing ahead of time in his disposition. You need hard power on the ground to be able to still win the victories. And it so happened the Eighth Army was outbeaten by the uh, Africa Corps time and again. And also an intriguing personality side saying, technology and machines and decrypt and Enigma machines are not good enough because there's always the human factor. And in the case of Erwin Rommel, he frequently flouted commands from OKW, from the high command. The high command would say, uh, do not take any offensive action, uh, do not move at this point, You know, just stay static, Hold, have a holding action. And Rommel would ignore that order and attack. So there were the British on the other side, blissfully happy, in the knowledge that they knew exactly what Rommel's orders were. They had the decrypts from uh, Bletchley Park. And in this case, it actually served as uh, um, more of a hindrance than a help, because what they didn't know was Rommel wasn't going to obey his orders. He was taking initiative in the field uh, without regard to what his orders were above. And, And he won time and again great surprise victories, despite the fact that the enemy knew everything about his disposition, capability, resources ahead of time. So... This is quite an amazing um, book because it proves uh, beyond any doubt whatsoever that the story we've been told all along is actually false. Uh, The Americans were involved long before uh, 7th of December 1941. Uh, The Soviets had all the warning that could possibly come and not only were prepared for a German attack, they were preparing their own attack anyway, which would have happened in 1940 if Germany had got snarled into the kind of trench warfare in the Western Front that had been anticipated in the light of what had happened in the First World War, uh, and they hadn't understood just what an incredible effect the blitzkrieg tactics would have to bypass uh, and not get bogged down into bloody trench warfare. So uh, it certainly blows out of the water. Uh, The imitation game and the Bletchley Circle stories, in fact, Max Hastings is scathing in Uh, taking down the uh, narratives being put by the Hollywood films and the glamorizing of Alan Turing and and the rest and uh, showing that, in fact, um, what we were dealing with in the Second World War was a secret war going on behind the scenes, which was in some ways almost more important because uh, it wasn't just the espionage knowing the plans of the other side ahead of time. But it was also mobilizing SOE, a special operations executive, which was one of the biggest terrorist networks in history. SOE, who were set out by Winston Churchill to set Europe ablaze, specifically studied the tactics of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, their terrorist attacks, and training their people to be terrorists behind the lines to go into France and Belgium and Netherlands and Norway and Britain. Denmark and Czechoslovakia and all the places they can, and to do assassinations and plant bombs and sabotage and uh, uh, assassinate and murder people and do ambushes and, and so on, hoping to provoke reactions to be able to set Europe ablaze. The the long-term damage that that did to not just Europe but the world, as many of Europe's uh, colonies and protectorates overseas decided to emulate the very tactics that had been glamorized by SOE uh, and now use it on the British and the Dutch and the Belgians themselves. So uh, you can see that, in fact, uh, Churchill set Europe ablaze, SOE directive had long-standing and um, unforeseen circumstances and implications that has caused ripple effects of catastrophe ever since. So it's a story of... Treachery, deception, betrayal, and in many cases, incompetence. But the fact is that our war books need to be rewritten, our textbooks need to be rewritten, because there are a whole lot of decrypts and files and secrets that have come out of the Kremlin and out of Bletchley Park and all over the world, which now show us that, in fact, there were some very significant things going on behind the scenes that demolish the narrative we've been given in an average textbook and average hollywood film. so back to you andrew
0: thank you peter i think that the thing that really jumps out at me from your presentation there is the use of these uh, traitors um and then the way that they dress it up as oh we had great intelligence and we deciphered the enigma all this sort of stuff and there was a guy i forget his name he was romanian and he wrote a book and he said that um, it was a comment I'm paraphrasing and I'm butchering it because I'm not remembering his name. You might know him. But he said, if you have a traitor, if you've captured a traitor or uh, an enemy, you know, which one would you kill first? And he said, you would kill the traitor because you can't trust them. And so it sounds to me like when you were saying about these, you know, like a machine that came out of Germany and you had all these basically agents, these traitors in, in Germany in positions of power that were giving... Information to the British, and when you've got something like that, how can you possibly win a war when you can't trust all the people in your own ranks, Peter?
1: Well, it's true. Uh, for example, one of the things that comes out of the book is that uh, while Franklin Roosevelt was giving huge gifts to Uncle Joe Stalin, Joe Stalin was infiltrating America with vast amounts of spies, including uh, nuclear scientists who were traitors, who were secret communists. Uh, who were supplying, uh, for example, the um, uh, Mars operation. They literally had supplied the Soviets from 1943 already, all the details about the upcoming atomic bombs and details about the neutron bombs and plutonium-based bombs. And the, uh, so that the Soviets were able to build their own uh, bombs uh, several years later with captured German scientists uh, that they got from East Germany as well to be able to do this. Uh, we, we, most of us should know that the Battle of Midway was won by uh, American signal intelligence uh, reading Japanese uh, decrypts, and they understood that uh, Japan was planning an attack on uh, the Marshall Islands, and uh, Midway was the key target. And how they could ambush the Japanese Navy there. So uh, that's one major victory that that the Americans are happy to make known. But Britain decided to make at GCHQ and the uh, Bletchley Park ultra-top secret for 60 years because I think they thought this would interfere in the in the heroic picture of how the troops did um, uh, versus uh, what actually was going on behind the scenes. But the involvement of German traitors, I, I didn't give enough detail to the fact that at key times on the Eastern Front, there were generals who took, who ordered the entire Divisions to surrender in block to the Soviets and open up huge, massive gaps uh, at a time, uh, you know, which makes all the difference. So that in 1944 in particular, there were quite a few high-placed generals on the Eastern Front who treacherously not only informed the other side of this position, but ordered their men to surrender, uh, opening up these gaps. So that uh, when, when uh, you have scenes like in the film Downfall, where Adolf Hitler's depicting, ranting about these traitors. Well, actually, it's um, it's completely proven true. Uh, the book Hitler's War by David Irving documents quite a few of it. But much of what David Irving suspected and hints at is confirmed by Max Hastings' book, The Secret War, which, of course, has been written much more recently, that, in fact, yes, there were these traitors in, in OKW. Even on the Russian front, there were generals who were communists who had suppressed their their communist uh, ideology uh, in order to get away with the treason that at the critical moment to see that their uh, units, their divisions uh, either stood down or uh, were made ineffective. Uh, And you can just imagine the devastation when soldiers on the ground are willing to fight to the nth degree against uh, the Bolshevik uh, threat, and yet they are betrayed by their own high command. Who, Who would expect that your officer commanding could be working for the other side? Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And I found the guy that I was looking for, and you'll be very familiar with him. Uh, the guy I quoted from, or tried to, I've got the exact quote, he was Corneliu Cotrianu. I'll read from the uh, Wikipedia page. Corneliu Cotrianu was a Romanian politician who was the founder and charismatic leader of the Iron Guard. Ideologically a fascist, he developed a variant of fascism known as Legionary Legion also known as the legionnaire movement an ultra-nationalist anti-semitic anti-hungarian anti zygonist anti-communist and anti-capitalist organization active throughout most of the interwar period generally seen as the main variety of romanian fascism and noted for its orthodox christian inspired revolutionary message the iron guard grew into an important actor on the romanian political stage coming into conflict with the political establishment and democratic forces the legionnaires traditionally referred to kotriano as the captain and he held absolute authority over the organization until his death he was born in 1899 and died in 1938 and the quote that i tried to recall is here a to z com. the first and fiercest A first and fiercest punishment ought to fall first on the traitor, second on the enemy. If I had but one bullet, and I were faced by both an enemy and a traitor, I would let the traitor have it. And that's the top of their uh, 20 quotes on him. There are a few others. Let's uh, work our way down here. probably include this in the post for our show nothing frightens the jews more than a perfect unity in others the unity of feeling in a movement in a people that is why they will always be for democracy which has but one advantage and that one for the nation's enemy for democracy will break up the unity and spirit of a people He says fascism means first of all defending your nation against the dangers that threaten it. It means the destruction of these dangers and the opening of a free way to life and glory for your nation. And I'll just give one more before I hand back to Peter for his comments. The law of silence. Speak little. Say only what you must. Speak only when necessary. Your oratory should be deeds, not words. You accomplish, let others talk. Some interesting words here, uh, aren't there, Peter?
1: They are indeed. I I think what's so important is love for your country, nationalism, is like love for your family, uh, expanded to include your neighbours. And the globalists hate that. And so the internationalists, the globalists, uh, those who are working for the New World Order, of course, they don't like the cohesion that comes from an intact family and from... uh, good neighborliness and from nationalism. And so they're trying to crush it with their internationalism, their globalism, which, of course, is hostile to faith and to families uh, and and to uh, normal allegiances. In fact, the communists have said, especially the Frankfurt School of Marxism, they said we must break every tie of blood, soil, father, mother, race, nation and religion. And that's their goal. You can see the Marxists, the cultural Marx in particular, they are working to break the ties of blood and soil and love of mother and father and nation and race and religion and faith. So uh, what they are continually pushing for is this New World Order. And you'll notice in the propaganda for the New World Order, uh, whether you're talking about the European Union or the UN, uh, the Second World War is a critical part of the mythology. That's led to this New World Order. So if you go to uh, uh, Brussels, as I have, to the EU uh, headquarters, you see a massive 360-degree um, uh, panorama outside the gates where you can see all different uh, classic uh, pictures uh, representing the Second World War and Auschwitz and all this sort of thing as part of the, the mythology narrative as to how we've come to the EU, which is saving the world and so on. And So they've got to continually... This explains why there's no end of the hundreds of films and documentaries and novels and books and uh, films and uh, what they're trying to do to continually bring up their version uh, twisted beyond recognition, like, for example, uh, The Imitation Game, which uh, is is really quite dishonest and uh, uh, scathing. But just think, for example, of other Hollywood movies like U-571. U-571 depicts... American sailors lifting an Enigma coding machine from a captured German U-boat. And uh, uh, the British were saying, but the real heroes was the British Royal Navy who captured an Enigma machine. But in fact, even that's false. Because yes, the the American uh, U-571 was an Americanization of what the Royal Navy did. But even that one wasn't of any significance in Bletchley Park's GCHQ cracking of Enigma code. They really had Enigma machines. (laughs) They really had Enigma... Codes. They already had the machines, they had the, the code books, they had the rotors. Uh, so, um, this is just pure Hollywood entertainment nonsense. And this is what they continually do because they're continually trying to demonize those who were nationalists and who anti Bolsheviks, anti Marxist, anti communist. And they are trying to glamorize the allies, which happen to include Joseph Stalin, Soviet Union, the NKBD, And Of course, to to get people to buy a lie like that, you've got to use a lot of technique and overwhelm people with more and more and more. But the last thing that the globalist needs is for people to stop and ask questions and think and say, well, if they saved the world, why has it got worse since? If the good guys won, why is it that uh, evil is increasing in every area, including in our own streets? And so uh, many people, I think, need to revise their thinking as we look at some of these books that are coming out, and it doesn't mean we accept everything in them because there's the human factor. Uh, but when new documents are released uh, that have been sealed for decades, like the uh, Bletchley Park, GCHQ, Enigma, uh, sixty years uh, uh, under wraps, and when the uh, Red Army's NKVD files of the Second World War come out uh, after '93, I mean these these things when they're revealed to us, oh. We got it wrong before. What's the harm in correcting what has been in the history books, in the textbooks? Surely, as we get more facts, we should change it. But there is a steadfast resistance, whether it's talking about Wikipedia, Google, Hollywood, they don't want to acknowledge reality or truth. They don't want to confuse the good story with facts. And so it's our job to remind people truth does not fear investigation. And uh, facts don't care about your feelings. Facts are stubborn things, and so we need to unearth the facts. What are the facts? And when we get closer to the truth, well, as Jesus said, the truth will set you free, and we need to understand the truth about the past if we make a better future. Back to you, Andrew. Yes, and
0: we've got a couple of minutes left. It's funny, this. uh codrianu guy i first heard about him i think uh, john friend had someone on on his show uh, i've never got round to looking him up but uh, i've been going through some more of these quotes and uh, peter this really fits in with what you were talking about today about espionage listen to this one the law of honor go along only on the paths of honor fight and never be a coward leave the path of infamy to others better to fall in an honorable fight than to win by infamy and uh, that that really sums up what you were talking about today uh, you know we the allies won through cheating basically through espionage and all these different things now there's some i've got a couple more there's quite a few uh here because i wanted to find one about uh, in which he talks about his faith um here we are the individual in the framework and in the service of his race the race in the framework and in the service of god and of the laws of the divinity those who will understand these things will win even though they are alone those who will not understand will be defeated so there you go he's hmm. talking about Uh, Very interesting things. I'll certainly look into this guy uh, a little bit more. And as I say, folks, I'll include the uh, link to these quotes from azquotes.com in the post for this show. Uh, Now, Peter, we've got, uh, uh, before we go, can you just let the audience, where they can find your work and how they can contact you?
1: Yes. Uh, My email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at ca, and our Website www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. That's our website. You can find us on social media, also under the name Frontline Fellowship. You know, everything about the intelligence war during Second World War, it affects us now because what comes out of this is that the Cambridge Five, the communists in the British, MI5 and MI6, uh, like Maclean and Blunt and Burgess, uh, Fuchs and so on, these, these chaps were involved in the war against Germany And then they were involved in the assassination uh, of, for example, a Polish uh, President, uh, uh, General Sikorski, the head of the government in exile uh, at Gibraltar, 4th of July, 1943. Then they were involved in betraying Britain. So people who had a communist allegiance in, in the American and in the British intelligence went on, not only after betraying Europe, to betraying their own countries, such as in America, how so many of their top people ended up uh, passing on to Uncle Joe Stalin all the nuclear secrets of the Manhattan Project. So you can see, it's it's uh, the uh, treachery in the Second World War bred treachery that affected us throughout the Cold War. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. Fantastic show as always, uh, folks. You have been listening to the real story of espionage in World War Two. I want to thank Peter so much for joining me again today. I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, do that with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.